sex change, man to woman, woman to man. we're talking about this week on Monster Kid Radio. I figured that song was appropriate. It's called Sex Change. It's from the band Les Orbits. You can find out more about them at their website, which is lesorbits.com. I'm going to spell that out for you. L-E-S-Z-O-R-B-I-T-S dot com. Or you can just head over to the show notes at our website to follow the link and find them on your own. Our website, it's monsterkidradio.net. It's the website of the podcast Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, Derek M. Cook. I want to welcome you to this week's show. I've got a guy on the show this week that I've wanted to have on the show proper for a long time, and we're going to talk about Edward D. Wood Jr. I think all of us monster kids know who Edward D. Wood Jr. is. If you haven't seen Plan 9 from Outer Space, you might have to cut a corner off your monster kid ID card. But Wood was a lot more than just Plan 9 and Bride of the Monster and these monster-friendly Bela Lugosi films. He had a lot more going on, and we're going to have Joe Blevins on the show to tell us all about his career, how he got started, some of the things that were actually true in the movie Ed Wood versus what wasn't true. Ed's progression from a guy who wanted to make movies to getting into Hollywood and the work that he did. And, you know, we're going to spend an awful lot of time talking about the movie Orgy of the Dead. That just kind of came up during our conversation, and I liked it so much, I'm going to include it in this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Plus, I have a little bit of a history with that movie, and we'll talk about that after part one of our conversation about Ed Wood Films with Joe Blevins. If you're not familiar with Joe Blevins, you need to head over to his website at d2rights.blogspot.com. It's the Dead to Rights website, or as he calls it, the Journal of Important Matters. Of course, there will be a link in the show notes, but it's pretty easy to find on your own. It's just a D, the number two, and rights.blogspot.com. Now, here is where he talks about Ed Wood Films. He's been doing a look at one of Mill Creek's 100 packs of classic comedy films, and pretty much anything else that comes up in Joe's head turns up on this blog. It's a worthy read. It's definitely one that I keep on top of as much as I can. I've been aware of Joe's work for quite some time, and to see him devote so much time and energy to Ed Wood and just the scholarship and this cinematic archaeology that he's been doing, digging up connections here and there, it's a fascinating read. I think it's something that you guys and gals are really going to enjoy. And it's funny. It's not just dry. It's a funny, entertaining read. Again, d2writes.blogspot.com. Check that out between episodes or when you're not looking at monsterkidradio.net and following all the links to our YouTube page and our Live 365 channel and our Flickr album or looking at our contact information like our email address, monsterkidradio at gmail.com or our voicemail line, which is 503-4795-MKR. That's 503-4795657. You can also find us on Facebook. We have a group. And we have a page. Now, in the group, it's where we have the conversations. The page is kind of our announcement page. Any special announcements that we need to make about Monster Kid Radio, that's where you're going to find that. And I've got a challenge going on right now. As of this recording, we have had 266 of you 
like the Facebook page. Well, likes are the currency of Facebook, and we'd like to see if we can get to 300 likes by the end of March. So if you are a Facebook user, please consider looking us up. It's facebook.com slash monsterkidradio. And just click on that little like button, the little thumbs up. We get to 300 by the end of March, and we'll celebrate somehow. I not sure yet. Also, something to keep in mind, here within the next few days on Facebook, you're going to see an event set up for the next Monster Kid Radio Crash. This is coming up March 20th at the Hollywood Theater here in Portland, Oregon at 7 p.m. We're going to get to see Santo and Blue Demon versus the Monsters. This is the third and final film of this year's Cinescopio event at the Hollywood Theater. Cinescopio was started to celebrate some of the classic in Latin American cinema. And the Santo films, the Lucha Libre films, they fit the bill this year. This is the last time you're going to get a chance to see a Santo film on the big screen at the Hollywood in a long time. So if you're in the Hollywood area, you got to join us. Now, not only do we have the film, there's also going to be a fashion show complete with luchador masks. And I was told there's going to be a panel after the film with some real life luchadors. I'm stoked for this. I've had a lot of fun at this event. Of course, I'm going to bring my recorder with me. So you're going to hear me recording from the show. You're also going to get a chance to hear anybody who joins the Monster Kid Radio Crash. If you recall, we had Ray Jelinek, Tom Doffel, Rick Myers, and Chris McMillan join us last time. And I'm looking forward to seeing each and every one of them and each and every one of you at the Hollywood. And remember, I'm really easy to spot. I'm the guy in the Hawaiian shirt who looks like he's having the most fun in the room. And finally, still on the Facebook train, I'm going to start a new poll over in the Facebook group. Now, this is where the conversations happen, where you can chat with other listeners on Monster Kid Radio, that sort of thing. I'm going to start a new poll because we are coming up on episode 100 here soon. And I'd like to do something special. I'm going to start a poll and ask you guys and gals what you think we should do for Monster Kid Radio episode 100. Because right now, I'm wide open. I've got some ideas, but I want to know what the listeners want to hear. And that's you guys and gals. Yeah, you, the one with the face and ears. And Anyway, why don't we go ahead and get to part one of our discussion about Edward D. Wood Jr. with Joe Blevins from the D2 Rights website right after this. It's 1966. The space race is on. The Cold War is heating up. And giant monsters are destroying Japan. Dai Kaiju Attack. The serialized giant monster story. Presented free every week on DaikaijuAttack.com and SDSullivan.com. Become a member of the Daikaiju Attack group on Facebook. Join the action today. Plan 9 from Outer Space, Bride of the Monster, The Bride and the Beast, Venus Flytrap, 1 Million ACDC. These are all movies that are either directed by or have a connection to Edward D. Wood Jr. And one man, Joe Blevins, has been focusing on this man's career over at his website, Dead to Rights, which you can find at d2rights.blogspot.com. Follow the link in the show notes. But before you go to his website, listen to the man himself. Joe, welcome to Monster Kid Radio. Well, thank you, Derek. It is great to be here. This is an honor. I love what you've done with the place. 
<laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah, I wanted to have you on the show for a while. I'm a fan of Edward D. Wood Jr., of Ed Wood. I mean, I've mentioned the movie Ed Wood, and I've talked about some of his movies both on this podcast and on a previous uh, podcast that I used to be involved with. But you, sir, have delved deep into this man's career and impact. Oh, yes. Uh, I've been doing some, yeah, some deep sea diving into the world of Ed Wood. Yeah. Deep sea diving. I like it. <laughs> yeah, it's not for the faint of heart, really, if you want to really get into the uh, the obscure ones. But I've enjoyed it. Now, I was first introduced to Ed Wood through, I think, this same movie a lot of people might have been introduced to Ed Wood, which would be Plan 9 from Outer Space. It's kind of notoriously known as Bela Lugosi's last film. And, you know, it's right. got the, the Grave Robbers from Outer Space thing. And then, of course, the movie that was made in 1992 featuring Johnny Depp. What was your introduction to Ed Wood? Well, my first knowledge of Ed Wood, uh, I've written about a little bit, was in the 1980s, I would say when I was a kid, I would go through video guides and movie guides at the bookstore and things. And I would always look through these big thick books that they used to put out of movie reviews. And I used to try and find all the ones that had like one star and zero stars. Because a lot of times <laughs> that would, those would be the most interesting to me. Because even as a kid, I was starting to get this idea, oh, like uh, if you're making uh, movies or you're making any kind of art, you can make stuff that like drives critics crazy. You can kind of actually like really mess up people's minds with what you're creating. And so I remember there was record guides where I used to go through and try and find all like the one star albums. And then I used to try and find all the zero and one star movies. And there was this book that used to come out every year called the Video Movie Guide, which I don't even think they publish anymore. But it used to be like a staple at all bookstores. And they used to sell it even at grocery stores and things, too, where they just reviewed tons and tons and tons of movies and stuff that wasn't being reviewed in other places and I just started noticing everything with Ed Wood got like one star, zero stars. So I thought, oh, wow, who is this guy? Uh, I'd better start looking into this. <laughs> and then in high school, the book that really affected me was this book called Cult Movies by Danny Perry. The name is P-A-R-Y, but it's pronounced like Perry. It looks like Peary. Okay. And it is... For a lot of uh, movie fans, uh, Danny Perry's book, uh, Cult Movies, is one of these seminal, like, influential books because it has all these kind of weird movies listed in it. He actually did a whole series of them. He did Cult Movies, Cult Movies 2, Cult Movies 3. And I would discover these, I think, around, I don't know, 15, 14 years old. And I would go through them and fantasize about seeing all of these movies he was kind of writing at the end of the 1980s maybe he was like on the cusp of the 70s and 80s when he was writing this maybe when the midnight movie circuit was actually starting to die off because of uh home video and the idea of people going to weird movies at midnight uh was not as common anymore because of vhs i guess people didn't need to because before that, if you were going to go see a, like a weird movie, you would have to maybe stay up and go out to a weird movie theater on the weekends or something and see something at midnight. Mm -hmm. But then uh, in the 80s, you could actually just go to your video store and see it that way. And he did a whole essay about Plan 9 from Outer Space. And then in 
cult movies three he did an essay about glenn or glenda and i read those over and over and over and over and over and over and over again and became very very fascinated with what could these movies possibly be like and you have to understand that this was sort of late 80s we're starting by the time i'm in high school we're starting to get into the early 90s and there's not really an internet cable is not even as cool as it is now and i don't know if we even had cable uh video stores you know, you would go to the mom and pop kind of local video store and they may or may not have any of this stuff. So it was difficult to see. Now you can find Plan 9 from Outer Space in one second for free everywhere. Right. Back then, it was actually kind of difficult to find this stuff. In a weird way, that kind of made these movies even more tempting to me. And it wasn't until I was about 17 years old and a senior in high school that I finally saw one of the movies, actually four of them, I think, in one sitting. Because of all places, Flint, Michigan, which is kind of a industrial town, an automobile manufacturing town in the Midwest, mm-hmm. had an Ed Wood film festival in 1992. It might have been the first of its kind in the Midwest. Just think of like the most unlikely place that there would ever be an ed wood movie marathon and it was flint michigan but for some reason there was this ed wood film festival there and became an annual event and that first night i saw bride of the monster glenn or glenda plan nine from outer space and night of the ghouls all in one night oh wow (laughs) wow that was a transformative experience for me and I hadn't coordinated it with anybody else to go. It was being held at this college where my mother actually was a teacher, and she knew the guy who was organizing the festival. So I interviewed that guy for the school paper, and I just went to this thing because it was basically my mom's workplace. And then just out of nowhere, a couple of people that I knew were there, like other high school kids that came to see these films. Mm -hmm. And after that, the dialogue became kind of a running in-joke with us. And of all the films, it was Plan 9. It was not, it was not Plan 9, actually. Even though I love Plan 9, it was Glenn or Glenda that really had like the seismic effect on us where we were saying all that be there, take care, be there stuff to each <laughs> other for days and days afterward. I think maybe weeks, you know. Biver, take care, biver. You wouldn't have to say anything other than that, you know. Mm-hmm. And puppy dog tails and big fat snails. You know, you could just say that stuff out of context and people would know what you're talking about. Again, this was 1992. Uh, the Tim Burton film uh, came out in 1994. 94, that's right. I think I said 92 earlier. I was mistaken. It was 94. You're right. I was so surprised to find out, you know, I didn't even think about it, that this is going to be the 20th anniversary of that film. So 1994, that film came out, and there were a few more VHS releases of Ed Wood-related stuff. So now not only were the films that he directed – coming to video but now films that he wrote which were directed by other people were starting to be revived and chief among those 
was the infamous 1965 film Orgy of the Dead, directed by a Bulgarian named Stephen C. Apostolov, uh, also known as A.C. Stephen. And I saw that film, which also features Criswell from Plan 9 from Outer Space. I know that you have reviewed that film in the past. Yes. Uh, Orgy of the Dead was something that I covered on my previous podcast. I don't remember what kind of rating I gave it. Not good. I remember yeah. it's not good. <laughs> it's a funny thing when you get so into this world of Ed Wood, you can't, you can't imagine, like, how could anyone not love Orgy of the Dead? And then you try, I try, when I have been reviewing the films for this project, trying to see them maybe as like an outsider might see them or as seeing them as a first timer might see them. And if you actually try to sit down and watch Orgy of the Dead in one sitting uh, for 90 minutes, it can be a little torturous or a lot torturous. But I guess at the time I had kind of lost all perspective because just the idea that there would be a movie starring Criswell was enough for me at the time. So I recommend in that article, don't try and sit through it in all in, in one sitting. And if you do, fast forward to all the dialogue and the plot. <laughs> it's That's what people are going to want out of that movie. The sort of burlesque dance sequences, uh, if you try and watch all of those, they just go on and on and on. So you're going to be very bored by the end of the movie if you watch it that way. So Well, you say fast forward to all the plot, you're going to have like five minutes of movie. <laughs> Actually, it does add up if you go through the whole movie and just basically it's easy to find the plot parts because it's the part where people or there's not like showgirls kind of dancing around. That's true. <laughs> That's the bulk of the film is women dancing for Criswell. And who's the woman in that? That's Fawn Silver. Her name was really like Fawn. Oh, I'm now I'm going to mess it up. But like Fawn Silverberg or Fawn Silverman. Uh, but it was one of those two. But her real name, uh, well, the name that she went with in this film was Fawn Silver. She didn't really make that many movies because she didn't need to. She apparently was wealthy in and of her own right, and, and being an entertainer was kind of a uh, lark for her. This was such an innocent time that Fawn Silver, she posed for a men's magazine, and the photo is so innocent She's like wearing a, a nightgown or something. It's not even like a sexy nightgown. She doesn't look like she's involved in anything even remotely erotic in the picture. She just looks like it just looked like a regular woman getting ready for bed. So, <laughs> yeah, I have softened on Orgy of the Dead over the years. I really love the music in that movie. It's just this weird mid sixties. Yeah. I don't know. I, I couldn't even describe it. It's not your typical soundtrack, and it's music that's designed for these women to dance to, but it's not overly erotic yeah. or go-go-y. It's, it, it's an odd film, but I've softened over uh, toward it over the years, and I, I listen to the soundtrack more than I watch the movie. That's cool. I have the soundtrack, too. Uh, the music is by a guy named Jaime Mendoza Nava. He actually is a composer of some note. He worked for, for the director, uh, Stephen C. Apostolov, on films in the 1970s as well, uh, under the name Jay Mendozoff. And I don't think you want to have doze off in your credits. Because oh, I think, no, especially if you're a musician. Yeah, so people might well be dozing off during some of the films that uh, 
Stephen C. Apostoloff made in the 1970s. But yeah, Jaime's music is what I would classify as exotica, which is kind of a, a musical genre that came to be known under that name, I think, in the 50s and 60s. It's basically stylized pop music or pop jazz music with kind of an exotic or foreign flavor. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the exotica would be, you know, here's a Hawaiian-themed song or here's a South American kind of song. But uh, the music is actually very stylized pop jazz and and it's not really authentic to those other countries or those other cultures. But you kind of add this sort of Henry Mancini-ish kind of layer of hipness and you get the music in um, Orange of the Dead. Les Baxter was well known for like the exotica style type music, and I've got a lot of his albums on my iPod as well. So that it is this kind of exotica like kind of score, I guess you could say, in Origin of the Dead. Yeah, you get a lot of that kind of music, but some of it's just weird tangents that he goes off. There's one piece in it uh, which I even compared to like Tchaikovsky, which I, I, I wouldn't expect. No, you know, because Tchaikovsky, in a, his own way, he did some of the same things. If you go through his score for the, now I'm calling it a, I guess it's a score for the Nutcracker. There's the scene where, in the Nutcracker ballet, where there's all these dances of different worlds and different cultures and different countries, like the Russian dance and the Arabian dance. And people know the Russian dance. It's in Fantasia, you know. You hear that every Christmas. Right, right. So there's a piece in there that's become known as the Arabian dance. And it's again, it's in Fantasia as well. And uh, there's a piece in Orgy of the Dead that sounds a lot like the Arabian dance from the Nutcracker. To me, it does at least anyway. And... There is this score, you know, speaking of like classical composers, you know, there's the same exact score as used in a couple of the, what, what I call the apocryphal films, which are like The Astounding She-Monster and Revenge the Virgins. They use the same exact score in two movies in a row. And I said that it reminded me of Stravinsky, because it kind of does sound like a little bit like Rite of Spring huh. going on in the background. Yeah, music can be a great asset to these films. You know, I, I once heard a director say uh, music covers a multitude of sins in movies, which I think it does, because you can kind of pave over a lot of mistakes with music if you use it properly. So, yeah, yeah, the the score for, for Orange of the Dead is actually pretty cool. And there is a soundtrack album to it, which I think is a lot of fun. And I think I, I've recommended to people, like, definitely, I, I would actually say listen to the soundtrack album more than even watch the movie, because... You get most of the plot and the dialogue in the little snippets in between the songs, too. So Yeah, the album does have little cuts from the film, so you get to hear some of the characters talking back and forth. I think Chris Wells on the album quite a bit. So. Yeah, he is. Uh, but the one thing that you do miss, and this is the one thing that's, I think, really, there's a couple of visual elements of Orchid the Dead that are really great. Uh, one is the cinematography by a guy named Bob Caramico, and it's beautiful and i also just love the design of the cemetery set in that film i think it's a beautifully designed set and i think it's beautifully lit i think it's the ultimate sort of ed woodian fake graveyard 
it's even better than the fake graveyard I said in in Plan Nine from Outer Space. Well, it's in full color, so you can. It is in full color, yeah. and it's, but it's beautifully sort of like this beautiful sort of baroque design to everything. There's you know these iron gates, and there's skulls everywhere, and <laughs> there's all this fog rolling in. Like the fog machines in that movie are just crazy. They're working overtime to the whole movie. There's this layer of fog. And it's beautifully lit. And I'm saying that because the photography in it is really, really beautiful. And if you get into Ed's movies in the 1970s, where he was writing them, and usually uh, Stephen Apostoloff was directing them, a lot of the photography in those movies is functional, but not very attractive. Fortunately, you won't have to worry about the, the quality of the photography in Ed's 1950s movies, uh, because those are actually quite beautiful. There's so many stunning kind of images in the 1950s films that he made. One of the great things about Ed's 1950s films is that they're almost all shot by a guy named uh, William C. Thompson, or Bill Thompson, who I think created a lot of really sort of expressionistic artwork through his camera and through lighting. And there's just so many shots in Plan 9 and Glen or Glenda and Night of the Ghouls and Bride of the Monster, which really had me, you know, almost catch my breath. They're so pretty, even though a lot of times the props and the costumes and the sets may not be that good by conventional standards. The camera work, I think, a lot of times is really beautiful. So a lot of Ed's uh, work in the 1950s looks fantastic. And that's one thing that I missed as the project moved on from the 1950s to the 1960s and into the 1970s, is that the camera work... By then, by the 1970s, Ed was mostly scripting uh, softcore films. And a lot of times the, the camera work in that is just kind of functional, and practical sure. and not as artistic as I would want it to be. Sure. Well, you, you said that a lot of the films in the 1950s, that's where he got to start was in the fifties. He actually started making movies in around 1948, not successfully. Oh, wow. And okay. he was, I think born in 1924 in Poughkeepsie, New York. He had kind of a lot of adventures as a young man. Uh, he obviously fought in world war two and fought on an atoll in the central Pacific and he was part of a traveling freak show as a half-man, half-woman. Uh, he studied the dramatic arts in Washington, D.C. Huh. And uh, in 1947 or thereabouts, he moved to Hollywood and started getting work as an actor in theater productions. And in 1948, he and a guy named uh, Crawford John Thomas, or C.J. Thomas, started making a movie together, and that is um, Crossroads of Laredo, which I don't know if people have seen. You can get it now. It's on the DVD of The Haunted World of Edward D. Wood Jr. It's a very, very, very crude, low-budget Western without sound. It was filmed silently, and they were going to dub in the sound later. They never got around to it because the project kind of fell apart. But that was 
48. And then he did a, in the early 50s, he did a pilot for television called Crossroads Avenger. So another Crossroads thing. And he did television commercials, which some of which are available. Uh, he did a lot of work in Los Angeles television, a film called The Sun Was Setting, which you can now see online. So the first feature film was 1953, and that's Glenn or Glenda. Okay. But it, it wasn't the first thing that he'd ever made. Uh, it was just the first feature film that he wrote and directed that actually was released. But he uh, had done television work before then, and he'd had this unsold pilot called The Crossroads Avenger, which is in color. And he had also tried and failed to make this movie called The Crossroads of Laredo, which is now been completed after a fashion and put on DVD. Yeah, 1948 is where I'm starting my timeline of where his his Hollywood career starting. And it becomes a it be, makes a very nice, neat bookend because his first film work was in 1948 and his very last was in 1978. So you can say that he had a 30-year career. Although right. the stuff that people know him for was really from like 1953 to 1957-ish. It's fuzzy, the timeline a little bit, but let's say that the stuff that people really know him for was made within about a five-year period in the midst of a 30-year career. Plan 9 from Outer Space, his most famous film, is often listed as 1959 uh, because that's when it achieved whatever release it was going to achieve. But... I think that it, it was released by a company called like the Distributors Guild of America or something. If you watch the movie, like the logo of that company is the first thing you see. But that happened in 1959. But the movie was actually completed in 1957 and actually had a premiere in 1957 as well. But Ed started out as an actor on the stage. And if you watch the Tim Burton movie, Ed Wood, it starts with him as an actor well, actually, as a playwright, right. staging a movie called staging a play called uh, "The Casual Company," which he had actually written as a novel, and if you go looking, you can find excerpts from "The Casual Company." I have some of it, and there's apparently more out there if you're willing to go through eBay and find magazines and stuff where it was. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure eBay's got everything. <laughs> Yeah, you know, eBay sometimes has everything, and eBay can sometimes also let you down. But I don't even want to tell you, you know, the amount of time, and I'm sorry to say money, that I have spent, like, finding obscure Ed Wood stuff and trying to assemble it. That's the other thing that that I've found out through this project, is that other than those few years of his career and those few iconic films that everybody knows, his stuff has not really been curated all that well. The movie's a little bit better, or actually a lot better than the books and articles, which are a mess. There's like nobody knows who owns the rights to all the stuff. He wrote dozens and dozens of paperbacks, and yet very, 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 very few of them are available to the public. And it's mainly been a rights issue and people not knowing who has the rights to them. So, Sure. Were you a fan of the uh, Tim Burton film? Yes, I am still a fan of it. And... Sort of the more that I have learned about Ed Wood's career, actually, 
in a weird way, the more I am a fan of the movie because it actually, I think it, in a lot of ways, it presents things as I think Ed would have wanted them or Ed maybe wished they had been. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. Because if you watch like even the title sequence from the, from the movie, which has sort of um, as a stop motion octopus and it has a, a graveyard and it has model flying saucers and there's, there's a layer of artificiality to it, a deliberate, in, in Burton's case, a deliberate layer of artificiality to it, uh, but it still looks really grand. And I think it's what Ed Wood would have wanted things to look like. And I think it's important for people to know why that film is the way it is and how it, it came to be before you kind of judge it for being inaccurate or whatever. People should know it's, it's based on the book uh, Nightmare of Ecstasy by Rudolf Gray. Mm-hmm. That is, if you're going to do any sort of research on Ed Wood, that's sort of the Bible. Uh, it's the closest thing that there is to a biography. It's really more of an oral history. He interviewed a lot of people. And basically, the book is just a string of quotes from Ed Wood associates, basically. Relatives, friends, co-workers, all kind of vaguely assembled into a chronological narrative. People's memories are, of course, maybe distorted by their own vanity or, or, or just people not remembering or people remembering it differently. Because like on one page, you'll, you'll see, you know, Ed Wood would never show up a drunk to a set. You know, he would never do that. And then the next page, somebody will say, well, Ed was drunk on the set every single day. If, there's, if you find it, there's one page, like there's one part in the book where on, literally on one page, somebody will say, Ed never drank vodka. And then like a page or two later, uh, you know, somebody will say, Ed's drink was vodka. Huh. So, Ed is this very mysterious kind of guy that all these people knew, but they maybe knew different versions of him and uh, different aspects of his personality. And the guy who wrote this book, Rudolf Gray, he was, he's actually more of a musician than he is a writer. He started researching it in the 1980s, in the early 80s, and he published it in, I think, 92, and the movie came out in 94. And it was written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, who've written other kind of biopics like um, The People versus Larry Flint, Man on the Moon, which was about Andy Kaufman. And in the published screenplay of Ed Wood, which I really do recommend people get the published screenplay of that because it's a very interesting book. They talk about how and why they, they wrote this movie together. They were film students in California in the early 80s. Around the time that Rudolph Gray started researching his book, they were kind of meeting in film school, and they bonded over Ed Wood, who at that time was kind of just becoming known to the public, uh, the Golden Turkey Awards, uh, yeah, which is something I've written about, you know, the role of the Golden Turkey Awards by Harry Michael Medved uh, in Ed's career, had come out in 1980 and named him as the worst director of all time and uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space is the worst movie of all time. And so a couple years later... Scott and Larry meet and they kind of bond over their mutual interest in Ed Wood. And meanwhile, Rudolph Gray is interviewing people. And Ed has just been dead a few years at this point. You know, Ed is kind of freshly dead, basically, if, you, if there can be such a thing as being <laughs> freshly dead. And so 1992, he publishes a book of, Rudolph Gray publishes a book of his findings. I liken 
what Rudolph Gray does to being like those explorers who draw like the first map of, of a place. And, you know, you see those old maps where it basically looks like North America, but it's all sort of squashed and stretched out. And you're thinking like, <laughs> that is actually yeah. not proportioned quite right. But he was the first person who was actually drawing a map, basically, of this. And like a good fourth of the book is like a, like a bibliography and a filmography of all the stuff that he worked on. Nobody had really assembled all that stuff into one place before until Rudolph Gray did. And finally, so Scott and Larry had a, a book that they could use as their guide for this. And what they did basically was they read it and, and took notes and, and they just cherry picked little facts here and there. And, you know, they would pick a factoid here and a little anecdote there. And almost everything that's in Ed Wood, the Tim Burton film, it can be traced to something or other in Rudolph Gray's book. It's just that, one, they skipped a lot of stuff. And uh, some of it they had to invent, especially the way that people meet each other in the story, how he meets Vampira, how he meets Bela Lugosi, how he meets Tor Johnson. Mm-hmm. They've said, like, well, the real stories, sometimes there aren't any. There's nobody saying, like, how he met these people. So they invent little meet-cute stories uh, for Ed and Bella and Ed and Tor. The real stories on these, unfortunately, are not very cinematic. The way to understand a lot of Ed Wood's career is just by uh, understanding the idea of sort of people being in different orbits, that's a line that you know you hear in the movie Look Back in Angora, which is a uh, documentary about Ed that was made in the 90s. The narrator says, the further people got out of Ed's orbit, the better they were. And <laughs> I, you know, like career-wise, I think he meant. Right, like, okay. But it really is about who is in your orbit. Basically, almost all the stories of how did Ed Wood meet so-and-so is... Ed worked with or knew somebody, that person had a friend, that person knew someone else. And, you know, it's basically six degrees of separation. And that's how he met Vampire and Tor Johnson and Criswell. It's just that they would have mutual professional contacts. And that was it. Basically, that's not as exciting as Ed sees Bella Lugosi trying out caskets, as you see in the film. Uh, that didn't really happen. The truth is that Ed's partner in the 1950s was a guy named Alex Gordon. And I think Alex might have actually known Bella Lugosi. And Bill Thompson, who was a cinematographer, knew a lot of people. So people like that knew other people. And through them, that's basically how Ed got got to all these people that are in his films, all these extraordinary folks who are in his films. Uh, are basically either friends or friends of friends. So that's not as exciting. So they they invent a lot of the little meet-cute stories for the film. Sure. Well, that makes sense. And, of course, you also have to sort of form this story into sort of a three-act film. Uh, the timeline in Ed Wood uh, is a little bit squishy, <laughs> I'll have to say. Again, like I said, it starts with Ed as a playwright, that would have been about 1947-48. And it ends with a premiere for Plan 9 for Outer Space, where after he and Kathy Wood get married, 
that is also not exactly how it happened. <laughs> there actually are pictures where there there are kind of grand premieres for for Ed Wood's movies, or as grand as he could make them. I guess the premieres, since there was kind of a two year delay between Ed, between Plan Nine from Outer Space being made and it being released, it wasn't like this great gala event, uh, which you see in the movie. But the timeline in that movie is anywhere from like seven to ten years. And if you watch the movie, you get the sense that maybe this is all happening over the course of a few weeks. You don't really get to see like how time actually passes, and they, they have to skip a ton. I would say that, yeah, I think the movie actually brought a lot of people to Ed's filmography, and it certainly was the catalyst for a lot of stuff being released on video and DVD, so I'm in, in favor of that. Most of all, I just think it's really funny. And I think it's really kind of beautifully made and beautifully shot. The other thing that I think you'll get from reading the script is that, uh, to me, the script seems kind of very clever and a little bit uh, snarky, maybe a little bit. And one thing that you get from the movie is that actors like Martin Landau and Johnny Depp actually invested with a lot of feeling. There's a lot of more kind of poignant emotion in how they're saying it, really, uh, than what they're actually saying. The, the scene that always pops into uh, to mind is when Ed comes to Bella's house because Bella's sort of freaking out. And Bella, he wants Ed to help him somehow. And, and, and he asks uh, Ed to make him goulash. And Eddie says, I don't know how to make goulash, which on the page is not much. But uh, the way that Johnny Depp and Martin Landau actually perform the scene, it's actually a very beautiful little moment, the goulash scene. Mm -hmm. So I think in that same scene, he asks, Bella actually asks Ed for formaldehyde. And Ed says, straight up around the rocks, as if he's not phased by it at all. Like, he, <laughs> like. Bella has made this crazy request for formaldehyde, to, I think to shoot up formaldehyde or drink it. Ed wants him to know that like, he's not phased by this request at all, so he just says straight up around the rocks. And on the page, it actually just seems kind of clever. And uh, the way the actors actually play it, they actually play it with a lot of, a lot of emotion. So I, I think then that way the movie is quite beautiful. The thing is, you know, that uh, that old saying about when, you know, when the legend kind of eclipses the facts, you print the legend. Right. Some of the stuff that's in Ed Wood is actually um, sort of urban legends about about Ed and, and Bella, stuff that isn't really true, but is so famous that you that, that they kind of had to put it in stuff that's disputed, like stealing the octopus for um Bride of the Monster. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, there are people who say, well, that it didn't really happen that way. It, it wasn't really a big, they didn't really steal an octopus. They didn't, like, sneak into a warehouse, like the Three Stooges, basically. Because <laughs> in the movie, if you see it, like, they drop the giant octopus on Tor Johnson. And, like, one of the people who goes along with him, I think, is, is Criswell, which I, I doubt Criswell would have been sneaking into warehouses and stuff. Criswell actually had quite a career. Right. Like a whole week of the project to 
covering Criswell's own career. He was the he was the personal psychic of um, Mae West, mm-hmm. which is crazy. And he had like best selling books, and he was on the Tonight Show a bunch of times. Like he was a, a much much in his day a much much bigger celebrity than Edward D. Wood Jr. He was quite famous and had a fame all his own, quite outside of Ed. So what you get in the Tim Burton film is a mixture of the screenwriter's invention, things like, obviously, the meeting with uh, Orson Welles. None of that even came close to happening. (laughs) Yeah. Real-life details, and then a little bit of urban legend kind of mixed in with it. So, you know, you're confronted in a film like that with, uh, for instance, the portrayal of Dolores Fuller. If there's one thing that like people who are kind of in Ed's inner circle object to, it's the way that the character of Dolores Fuller, who was his girlfriend before he married Kathy Wood, and in the film she is portrayed by Sarah Jessica Parker. In the movie, uh, she is kind of a temperamental... Yeah. Uh, and... None of that is true at all. Uh, if anything, trying to be a stabilizing force in Ed's life, like by all accounts, just a very sweet uh, lady. But do I object to the character as it's portrayed in Ed Wood? No, I don't, because it's funny. Like the performance is actually pretty funny. You know, like the character actually, uh, there's some funny scenes where Dolores is kind of freaking out. So, no, the movie is not the truth. But. No. But the thing is, with Ed, the truth is kind of unknowable. So nobody really knows the truth. So this is as good as anything else. Well, the film kind of portrays Plan 9 as being like the apex, the the big one. This is the one I'll be known for, I think, is what he says in the film. But he continued to have a career past Plan 9. Did he ever get to that level of what the film portrays Plan 9 to have been? In his later years, he was a guy who was very cognizant of his own career and how it was uh, perceived by the public. People think that maybe, oh, he was totally oblivious to this worst director of all time thing. But it's not true. He actually, he knew like that people made fun of his movies and stuff. And in his better moods, I think he he actually had a sense of humor about all of that. But uh, he was also a guy who who kept very close tabs on his own career and and kept good records of, or as good a records as he could of it. But he reminisced frequently in, in later years about plan nine. And he always thought of it as his crowning achievement as his magnum opus. So he definitely saw it that way. One thing you got to realize is that like when in 1980, two years after Ed died was the year that the golden Turkey awards came out. Harry and Michael Medved did not in any way, shape or form discover Ed Wood. They didn't, know anything about Ed Wood. They didn't discover him. They didn't find his movies on their own at all. What happened was that Harry had written a book a couple of years previous called The 50 Worst Films of All Time. He asked for readers to send in their suggestions for the worst films ever and the worst directors ever. And it was readers who came up with Ed Wood, uh, not the Medveds at all. The Medveds were just passing along what they heard from other people. So what you would have to know is that then by like the 1970s, obviously by that point, somebody out there must have known who Ed Wood was. They're like the, the Ed Wood cult must have been sort of in its nascent form in the 1970s because people were 
obviously there to write uh, to uh, Harry Medved and Michael Medved about Ed. So I think what happened was, first off, the handful of movies that Ed made in the 1950s got shown on television quite a bit. And, you know, they were also rounding out the bills at drive-ins quite a bit. So Plan 9 or Bride of the Monster being maybe used as a supporting feature at a drive-in. And through those experiences, again, this is the pre-internet era when uh, stuff was not nearly so well documented. If you were going to be a movie geek back then, you kind of really had to do all the research on your own. And uh, stuff like uh, like a B-movie director like Ed Wood would not have like books and a biopic and boxed sets on DVD about him at all. Because if you even go back like, you know, 30 years, we were a lot more uptight kind of as a as a culture, a lot more, you know, and the the idea of lavishing all this attention on somebody like Ed Wood even 30 years ago, 35 years ago would be kind of an uh, an outre kind of thing to do. Yeah, it was more of a bizarre thing to do to to focus all this attention on Ed. So the people who were in the late 1970s who know him were really like the, you know, the people who knew the the B-movie stuff, the B-movie science fiction and horror stuff. They were the ones who were supplying this name of, of Ed Wood to Harry and Michael Medved. So Plan 9 had already started to get a bit of a reputation, and it was a film that Ed looked back on, you know, in interviews because uh, there were interviews actually towards the end of his life, thanks to uh, a guy, a filmmaker named uh, Fred Olin Ray, who's had an incredible career as both a filmmaker and a wrestler, both directing <laughs> movies under his own name and directing movies under uh, assumed names. Because he he makes all kinds of films. He makes he made like a lot of softcore films, but he also made like like kids films and children's films. You know, mm-hmm. so Ed was very much aware of Plan Nine from Outer Space. He he didn't forget about it over the years, and he did look back on it as his crowning achievement. But Ed was very proud of his whole career, and uh, he kept updating his resume, even like during like the really, really lean years of the 1970s, uh, when the work had almost stopped coming in, he was updating his resume all the time. And as often as he could put his own name on projects, when you're working, uh, especially in the field of pornography, again, the laws were a lot more uptight, and maybe it would not be so advantageous to have your name attached to a movie or attached to a book that might be prosecuted or, or be banned or censored. So a lot of times those are written sure. under, under false names. But as often as he could, he put his own name on stuff and was seemingly as proud of Orgy of the Dead as, as he would be of Bride of the Monster. He wasn't ashamed of having made anything like that. He was kind of like a kid that uh, would you know, bring his school projects home to show his mom, you know, look at this, you know, and it's got my name on it. So he was had that kind of kid's enthusiasm for all the projects, even the ones that might seem seedy or disreputable to us. Yeah, he was a booster. He was a, he was the original. Ed Wood was the original Ed Wood fan. <laughs> Nicely put. I want to ask you about a movie that has a an odd trajectory in terms of when it was finished and when it was finally released, and that would be Night of the oh. Ghouls. 
what happened with that film? Why did it take well, so long for it to come out? This is another one of those situations where I don't know if it's actually mentioned in Ed Wood, but it's definitely become one of the, like the, the urban legends, which is that it sat in the processing lab for 30 years because Ed couldn't pay the lab fees on the film. And this was another one of those projects that was known under different names. He sometimes referred to it as Revenge of the Dead. But now, of course, the video version is known as Night of the Ghouls. It seems to have come out around 1983. But here's the thing. The idea that this film sat unseen for you know, 25 years or whatever is not really true. Uh-oh. Because there are photographs of a premiere in 1959, where you see Valda Hansen and Paul Marco and Criswell and Tor Johnson, and they're all dressed up. I think there's a, even a picture where Tor Johnson might even be pretending to strangle Valda Hansen. And why would all these people get dressed up and stand on the red carpet or uh, outside of a theater if there was no movie to show? There must have been one. There must there was a premiere. So it must have premiered in some form in the year 1959 or thereabouts. But there are letters where he is writing to Anthony Cardoza. And I think B-movie fans should know who Anthony Cardoza is, right? He is basically a, a film producer who bought himself a lot of a lot of acting parts because he would help finance movies and he would also be in them. And if you are a fan of mystery science theater 3000, you have seen some of the movies that Anthony Cardoza made with Coleman Francis, like the skydivers and red zone Cuba. Okay. And the beast of Yucca flats, which <laughs> got uh tour Johnson in it. Yeah, so Tor was in that one, and Tor is in uh, Night of the Ghouls as well. And so is Tony Cardoza. And Tony Cardoza not only acts in the film, but helped finance it as well. And there are letters that Ed wrote to Tony Cardoza saying, well, maybe we should re-edit it. I have some more Bela Lugosi footage. Maybe we should take out some of the Criswell footage we have in there now, and we should put in some Bella footage. So there were maybe thinking of even making Night of the Ghouls the last, last, last Bela Lugosi movie. If Bride of the Monster was his last movie and then Plan 9 from Outer Space was his last, last movie, then Night of the Ghouls would have been his last, last, last movie. You know, it would have been like several years after Bella's death that they were mm -hmm. going to try and make another posthumous Bella film out of this. But it never happened. So if you watch the film... Bella's not in it at all. But that was not for lack of, of planning on Ed's part. Ed was actually maybe thinking of using Bella footage in this. So maybe some rough cut assemblage of the film was premiered under the name Revenge of the Dead. This is interesting. I haven't actually written about this on my uh, site yet. But the version of the film that we now know that was released in 1983 is due to a... Um, film distributor named Wade Williams. And anybody who watches B-movies from the 50s knows Wade Williams' name because Wade Williams puts his name at the beginning of a lot of movies. Wade Williams presents a Wade Williams presentation of a Wade Williams film, and then the movie starts. You know, the, the Wade Williams collection logo comes up, 
And, and sometimes Wade Williams uh, superimposes his credit over the open credits of a movie. Oh, good. Yeah. But he is apparently one of the largest private collector movies in the world, or at least in America. And he has the rights to a lot of these B-movies. And there's two schools of thought on, on Wade Williams. One is that he's exercising copyright control over films that are rightfully in the public domain. Some people think these movies are in the public domain and that no one owns them, certainly not Wade Williams. And that Wade Williams is already very wealthy and he's trying to make money off of these movies that are really in the public domain. And the other is that without Wade Williams, a lot of these movies would never be seen ever because, you know, he was the one who, who went to the trouble of preserving these films. Sure. Okay. Uh, so there are two schools of thought on Wade Williams. I don't really have an official opinion because I don't really know all the legal aspects of who owns what. But the film that was released in 1983 might actually have been assembled into its current form by Wade Williams. So it's possible that the, the, the cut of the film that exists today is the product of Wade Williams, who had the footage and then assembled it into a movie that can be released on VHS and DVD. Gotcha. So uh, I had somebody who wrote to me and actually said that they have a print of Revenge of the Dead that actually has more footage than what's in the movie. Than, oh. So I don't know what's ever going to become of that, if they're actually ever going to do anything with it. Uh, but this person seemed to feel that the version that's out there now is sort of cobbled together by Wade Williams. It's disjointed and has a sort of dream logic quality of all of Ed's movies. But I don't think anybody would say, oh, this feels like it was edited by somebody else. This felt like it was thrown together after the fact. Sure. Because it seems just like any of Ed's other movies from the era. It doesn't seem any more or less coherent than the other ones from, you know, that era of his life. So I'm glad it exists. This is one of the things that's come out of this project is that I've um, I've grown to really love that movie. I've, I think I've watched it. I think seven or eight times probably in the, in the course of the last few months. But the standard story that's told about it is that Ed couldn't pay the lab fees. And so the movie sat in the labs for 25 years. So that's the standard story. Gotcha. As with everything, it's truth ish. You know, there's as Stephen Colbert would say, there's truthiness to it. So <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of truthiness to the story of, of the film being in the lab for 25 years and not processed, but it's maybe not the gospel truth. Like I said, the orgy of the dead discussion kind of came up without a lot of provocation. It just wasn't planned. And as a lot of you know, I was the producer of the Mail Order Zombie podcast a couple years ago. We reviewed the movie Orgy of the Dead over there, and I did not give it a favorable rating. And actually, Joe kind of called me out on that. And I have to say, I've kind of come around to his way of thinking on that film. I really do kind of dig Orgy of the Dead for a number of different reasons, none of which have to do with the story, because the story is still pretty weak. But it's still a fun movie. And as Joe pointed out, it's a beautiful film. It looks great. The graveyard is fantastic. It looks like a real set 
and it's gorgeously lit and the colors. It's just a wonderful film. Well, wonderful might be pushing it, but it's a fun film. And I would highly recommend y'all check it out. And you know what? If I was still doing Mealwater Zombie, I'd change the review that I gave it. I want to thank Joe for taking the time to chat with me about these Ed Wood films. Like I told him off mic, it was a long time coming. I really have been looking forward to having him on the show. I hope you dug part one of our conversation. Part two will be here in a couple of days. And in part two, we're going to talk about some Ed Wood films that are monster kid friendly outside of the typical Plan 9 and Bride of the Monster and things like that. So come back here in a couple of days for that conversation. Until then, if you have any thoughts about the show, well, follow the contact information on the website or hit me up on Facebook. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution and non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that does not apply to the song Sex Change. That song belongs to Les Zorbits, and that appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. With their permission, you can find out more about them by following the link in the show notes or just going over to their website, lazorbits.com, or look them up on Reverb Nation. Talk to you in a couple of days. Sex change. Man to woman, woman to man.
to woman, woman to man. Man to woman, woman to man. Woman to man. Woman to man. Woman to man. Man to woman.